Welcome to Status, an audio journal of the Arab Studies Institute. I am Noura Erekat, and today in our discussion, I am speaking with Dr. Lisbeth Zegfeld. In mid-September 2019, on the day of Israel's repeat general election, a Dutch court heard a hearing challenging war crimes against Benny Gantz, the leader of the Blue and White Party, who was also the chief of general staff of the Israel Defense Force at the time of the Gaza bombing during the 51-day offensive in 2014, also known as Operation Protective Edge. The case was brought on behalf of Ismail Ziadeh, a Dutch national of Palestinian descent, who is seeking compensation of 600,000 euros for the death of six family members, his mother, three brothers, sister-in-law, and 12-year-old nephew, when the family's home in the Al-Burej refugee camp in Gaza was bombed. According to Gaza health officials, during that 51-day operation, approximately 2,200 Palestinians were killed, including 534 children. They were mostly civilians, and Ziadeh is amongst those survivors who is bringing these claims on behalf of the violations and harm done to his family. With us on the line to discuss this recent lawsuit is Dr. Elizabeth Zegfeld, the lawyer for Ziadeh. Zegfeld was sworn in in 2000 and has been a partner at Prakin de Oliveira Human Rights Lawyers, a renowned law firm in Amsterdam since 2005. As head of the International Law and Human Rights Department, she's worked on a number of high-profile cases focusing on war victims and serious human rights violations. Uh, these include a case in September 2000. 13, when the Dutch Supreme Court decided in favor of her clients, victims from Srebrenica in 2014, when widows from Indonesia were granted compensation for the loss of their husbands who were summarily executed by Dutch military in the post-colonial conflict between the Netherlands and Indonesia. In the same year, the European Court of Human Rights granted her client from Iraq justice a ruling that his son was shot dead while under Dutch jurisdiction at a checkpoint in Iraq. Most recently, she brought a successful claim against a state-owned rail company for transporting Jewish persons to a concentration camp during the Second World War on behalf of survivors and relatives of those perished. From 2006 till 2013, Zegfeld was a professor of international humanitarian law, in particular the rights of women and children in armed conflict at Leiden University, since 2013, she holds the Chair of War Reparations at the University of Amsterdam. And in 2010, she founded the Nuhanavuk Foundation, which assists war victims who seek access to justice. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Elizabeth Zegfeld. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Can you please start by telling us a little bit more about the details of the case on behalf of Ismail Ziadeh and his family? Yes, well, key aspects are, of course, that his family perished in this bombing in Gaza in 2014 and that they lack any access to justice in Israel. So he lost six family members, seven family members, and he can't visit them. He can't go to Gaza, really. He has that double nationality, he has a Palestinian and Dutch nationality. He's living here with a Dutch, uh, his Dutch wife, his three Dutch children. And so he has asked a Dutch court to rule on this bombardment by Israel. 
on his family home in 2014. Under what jurisdiction is he bringing this in the Netherlands? It seems that you've brought several cases like this before between Dutch national courts as well as the European Court of Human Rights. I understand this is in a Dutch court. Can you tell us more about the jurisdiction available? to Ziada to bring these claims. Yes, right. Well, many of the listeners will think of criminal jurisdiction in, the, in such cases. We have brought this case under civil jurisdiction, both under criminal and civil jurisdiction. The Netherlands has this law that provides for universal jurisdiction. And that means that while there needs to be a link with the Netherlands, in some way, the court can deal with facts, events that have occurred outside the Netherlands and at first sight would look like not to be related to the Netherlands. So as in the case of Ismail Ziada, the bombardment occurred in Gaza. It was conducted by the Israeli army and the victims were all Palestinians. But one of the victims, one of the relatives also has a Dutch nationality and lives in the Netherlands. And under certain circumstances, uh, certain conditions, he can then bring this claim in uh, before a Dutch court. This condition is that it's unacceptable or impossible that he can gain access to court elsewhere. So that was a crucial aspect of the whole case, that we had to prove that indeed Israeli courts deny access to Palestinians. Let's delve deeper onto both of those grounds, both the connection that you mentioned, as well as this lack of other uh, available remedies and jurisdictions. On the first one, is it critical that Ziade also has Dutch nationality in order to be able to bring this claim in a Dutch court. In this case, there was nationality. So that was, in, in a sense, the strongest link to the Netherlands. It's not a strict requirement. So we have also brought cases where there was no such nationality, but the person in question, the victim, has his uh, natural habitat in the Netherlands. So they he lived in the Netherlands and uh, he resides in the Netherlands and he didn't plan to go anywhere else in the near future. So that could also be a sufficient link. And the reason that I ask this is because universal jurisdiction, I think, experienced a rise, a peak and and, and relative success in the early 2000s in the aftermath of massacres in Rwanda and the former Yugoslavia. And since then, it's steadily been truncated by political forces that have tried to limit access to it either by creating an impediment that a warrant has to be approved by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of a particular government or that you have to demonstrate a national link. Has there been a similar attack on universal jurisdiction in the Netherlands or has it fared better than in other places? No, we have had a similar experience here. There was indeed a living up of this whole, especially in criminal jurisdiction of these type of cases then to steadily uh, decrease again, as you say, towards 2010, given the uh, political circumstances and also the rise of terrorism. So the focus has gone much more to terrorism than to uh, international crimes. And that may also be an explanation why we went for civil and not for criminal jurisdiction, is that you do not need to prosecute for civil jurisdiction. So it is, you know, it's more up to the initiative of the victims that they can pursue such cases. Although I must say that for international crimes, the prosecutor has no choice than a prosecute. But we all know that the prosecutor may be influenced by by Ministry of Justice. So 
ultimately the situation may be may be more difficult. So, but for civil jurisdiction, you can file your writ of summons and you can pursue uh, uh, your case. And what are the political impediments that you anticipate in the civil suit? Will there be any intervention by the prosecutor because of the criminal implications or the implications that this might violate the sovereign immunity of Israel? Yeah, well, that's I th- the, the first and foremost obstacle in this case is the immunity of at least the claimed immunity of the two army generals, uh, Gantz and Eichel. Israel says they have merely implemented state acts by the bombardments. They haven't uh, acted on their own account. They did what the state asked them to do. Israel enjoys immunity. You can't sue Israel in an other national court that would uh, violate the uh, equality between states. And so the generals, the military generals, should also enjoy immunity. That's at the end, uh, that's of course also a political argument. Uh, When we filed our writs of summons, we served them on the generals. Israel tried to circumvent, uh, to intervene, uh, I must say, through our ministry, but that happened all a bit too late and the case ended up in court, which was in our uh, favour. And so a court is now to to rule on it. But they tried to stop the case uh, earlier by claiming immunity and asking our ministry to order the bailiff uh, not to serve the writ on the two generals. So it can be done, it can be done, and it has been done. Uh, but in this case, I guess we were we were just lucky that the ministry was too late and the, and the court is now to rule on the case. But does that mean that the ministry can't now rule, even as the court is considering uh, whether or not to proceed? ministry can't intervene. The idea is that at the end of the day, it's the same procedure. If the ministry intervenes, then there's still a court that has to decide on the decision of the ministry on immunity. But that would be then summary proceedings on only that question. Now, a civil court has also uh, is also asked, of course, to deal with the question of immunity, but is simultaneously also dealing with the question of access to justice in Israel. And it's a full court sitting. So it's not summary proceedings which would be the case if uh, in earlier states Israel would have been successful in intervening. But now we have a full court with three judges, with full proceedings, two written rounds and hearings in court. So let's say the the trial, the fair trial, the the access to court aspect in our country has now been more uh, lived up to than would be the case if uh, Israel would have been able to intervene earlier on. So there is a possibility, for example, that the court can decide that Gantz and Eschel benefit from immunity because this was an act of state and simultaneously rule that Israeli courts are not available as an, as an avenue to justice. And so simultaneously, there's a loss and a win of both determining that, yes, Palestinians do have access abroad because they're denied access within Israeli courts. And simultaneously, this case cannot be brought in this instance for XYZ reason. Is that possible? Well, no, unfortunately not, because if they rule that the generals enjoy immunity, they have no competence to deal with any other questions in this in this case, because there's a procedural bar then for further decision making in the case. They lack simply lack the competence to do anything else on the case. So that would be a full mean a full stop. So tell us a little bit about the access to justice. The argument that you're making is that uh, Palestinians do not have access to justice to Israeli courts. And there is something about that even the International Criminal Court um, is not available to them because of of the length of and, and the politicization of the preliminary hearings. Can you tell us more about that argument? Well, yeah, 
um, it's important to distinguish here between Palestinians from the West Bank and from Gaza. While for both groups of Palestinians, access to justice is dire, or you could say for the West Bank Palestinians, it's it's dire and it's close to impossible for Palestinians from Gaza. It's truly 100% impossible to gain access to justice. And that turns very much about around the concept of enemy subject and enemy territory. Gaza has been declared by Israel as enemy territory and Palestinians from Gaza are enemy subjects. And that closes the door of courts to them in full. While, and don't be mistaken, we'll find lawyers who will point to all kinds of rules in the statutes in uh, in Israel that say, yes, but, yes, but, but you could try this, you could try that. But at the end of the day, this concept will close the door to them. And that's what practice has shown. And that is what has to be the ultimate conclusion, also based on conclusions of of so, so many NGOs and the United Nations that no other uh, uh, conclusion is really possible. Apart from that, we, there are many other barriers that I could mention, like they cannot leave Gaza, so they will never be able to be present in a court hearing. The language won't be their language. The cost is prohibitive for them to, to participate or to even initiate a court case. They can speak to their lawyer. They cannot bring evidence to court. I mean, it's just all these aspects are are key to a case that you would like to initiate. So it's uh, for us, it was uh, it wasn't difficult to find and to present evidence to the court on this aspect. While Israel has done its best uh, with experts and all kinds of presentations of its own legal system to counter this point, but uh, I have little doubt that 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 it, that will be at the end of the day unsuccessful. I my estimate is really that this all turns around immunity and that. Hopefully not, but Israel has in the past always been successful in claiming immunity and closing the doors on political grounds. But if it really comes down to or comes to an assessment of their legal system, this case must be successful for uh, Ismail Ziada. There, there can hardly be any doubt. In regards to immunity, you're right. I worked on a few cases here in the United States, also under civil jurisdiction, where claims of immunity or other claims of non-justiciability, that this wasn't a judicial question, it was a political question, have precluded suits against Avi Dichter and Moshe Alon, for example. There have been similar efforts against Dan Marie Dore and Zippy Livni in London, as well as Ariel Sharon in Belgium. So this is certainly not the first, but it's the first case in a long time, and it's unearthing this question anew. I wonder, in the context of your very rich you know, litigation history and success of it, have other states made this claim, for example, has Indonesia um, or, or even um, the Netherlands made similar claims about immunity, about its operations in Indonesia or Iraq? Um, or is this unique? Yeah, well, that's a very interesting question because the lawyers of, I should say, the two generals, but I, 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 I say Israel because that's, of course, how it works. These lawyers are paid by the Israeli Ministry of Justice and instructed by them. Um, so these lawyers kept uh, saying in court, if the courts will grant our claim, uh, the next ones to be sued are Dutch military in Afghanistan or Iraq or uh, you name it. And similar uh, things will happen to other uh, military abroad. Our response has been, if we can, and I say we, if Dutch military can be accused of war crimes or other international crimes, yes, they can and perhaps should be prosecuted or sued in other countries because that's what the law says. 
And secondly, that may not be necessary as long as our justice system works properly. And these are exactly the two problems we have with Israel. They commit war crimes nonstop and they have no proper legal uh, system functioning. So the claim is groundless and uh, is propaganda and uh, cr trying to create uh, political fear with the court. I don't think that our, our court is very sensitive to that, but uh, they tried nonetheless. So, you know, in terms of the propaganda, there seems to be, you know, some worries, some indications. I understand that right before the hearing, Twitter suspended the account of the Palestine Justice Campaign, which supports Ziada's legal action. Twitter alleged an unspecified, quote, breach of rules and declined to comment further. What does that tell us about the political work and maneuvers at play? Are you concerned about these? Do they tell us anything more about how they can influence the court itself? Well, I think we all have enough reason to uh, be afraid of that. For ourselves, in this case, we've been very alert to such signs. Uh, and I would absolutely immediately respond to that. Uh, it would come to uh, to me. I haven't seen any of such, any such let's say, efforts or, or reaching out to the court, be it behind the scenes, indirectly, in ways that are that cannot stand daylight, that shouldn't be, uh, uh, shouldn't take place in a, in a court of law. But I, I can never, never say it hasn't happened. And uh, time will learn us uh, whether, you know, how, how this case has taken place. But I must say, in the Netherlands, we have a very well-functioning legal system, of course, there are always exceptions, always either mistakes are, are made or there may be uh, single persons in such a system that, that eventually will prove not to be worth <laughs> sitting on, on the bench. But I just haven't, I, you know, there haven't been any evidence in that regards in this case. The pressure is high and uh, that that's something that's for sure. And the pressure is high at this juncture, but it certainly can, there's other opportunities for intervention at later junctures. So can you tell us about what is the timeline of this after this hearing? What are the possible ways forward and what are other places that, you know, Israeli foreign ministry can intervene um, on these questions in order to basically dismiss the case and, and undercut the hearing? Well, maybe I should also add something something different. We do have jurisprudence that supports our case. On the basis of that jurisprudence, we should be able to win that case. But this jurisprudence is all concerned with Africa or faraway countries, countries that are not as powerful as Israel is at least powerful uh, with regard to our country. So, yes, in an Ethiopian case, it was clearly possible what we were asking, uh, what we are asking. Afghanistan, uh, the same. The same that we see with the International Criminal Court, that all the cases turn around Africa. I told the court that if this case that we brought on the 17th of December would be about Rwanda, there's no doubt that we, we would win the case. And I really say that in full confidence and with knowledge of, of the legal system. But because of Israel and all the fuss that's created and all the, the political atmosphere that exists around this, the whole case has come in a different daylight. I mean, that's not the, you know, the in, immediate or the direct interference with the, with the legal case, but it does create this atmosphere that may indirectly and invisibly but still have an, an important impact on the case. So that's what I what I want to say for the future. Um, we'll have a decision on the 29th of January. The, the court will convene again. We'll go to the court. will be a public decision. 
translated uh, or an, an English translation will be uh, provided uh, simultaneously. And uh, we will await that ruling and we'll decide on, on appeal. And if anything comes to our uh, attention in, in the meantime, we'll respond to it as we should. And I can't really anticipate that. So just for our benefit and information, as you await the outcome of this hearing, obviously the the case has made international headlines. It coincided with the with the second election Israeli elections this year as Benny Gantz was leading um, an opposition to Netanyahu. So it seems that it was also ripe for broader public education within the Netherlands about Israel's war crimes or alleged war crimes in Gaza. So has this, you know, despite what's happening within the courtroom, which we don't know and are subject to a lot of specialist considerations, what about the opportunities this has afforded for public education on this issue to rehash it, to provide Ismail Ziyadeh a platform to talk about his loss and the harm done to him and his family? Have Has that been forthcoming? Yes, I think so. I think the goal also to, for him to have a day in court and to state to the court all the facts and his experiences since these facts uh, was incre- incredibly important the courtroom was packed, uh, there was a lot of media. Um, so paying attention to this and not to to push this under the carpet of, of the ministries and, and the political channels uh, without anyone seeing or indeed, indeed understanding anything of it was an important goal of this whole case. And, and we succeeded in that. And it couldn't, I mean, for that day and the whole preparation couldn't have gone better. So I do hope that wherever we uh, we end up in January, that we will be able to continue in appeal and keep this case uh, out there as long as we can. Also for the purpose of drawing attention to it, that that is that is important. And for you personally, Lisbeth, has there been, you know, I, I can only imagine the pressures that you've been under, any kind of targeting or smearing, which is part of, you know, part of the constellation of how pressure can also quietly work. But given your robust record on behalf of communities all over the world um, and human rights, I, it would be pretty hard to make that case against you to paint you maliciously. But have you endured that as well? No, I haven't. And I'm, I'm to some extent to my surprise, but I haven't. Well, we hope that that remains the case and, and that you have the strength. We look forward to having you back to discuss this on in late January, perhaps not on January 29th, but shortly thereafter so that we can get an update and, and stay abreast of developments here. Excellent. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Status Audio Magazine. The Status is produced by the Arab Studies Institute in partnership with Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, co-sponsored by George Mason University's Middle Eastern Studies Program and the American University of Beirut's Asfari Institute for Civil Society and Citizenship. Interested in pitching an interview, a program episode, or becoming a partner, Email our associate producer, Paola Messina, at paola at statushour.com To listen to more conversations, on-the-scene reports, and discussions, visit our website, statushour.com. 
or subscribe via iTunes and listen to us on the go. You can also friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and for more conversations, please visit statushour.com.